Well, we don't talk about religion or politics. Have you heard that statement? I've heard that statement. But why? Why is it such a common statement in our context? Well, the answer is complicated. I don't have time to answer it thoroughly this morning. But at its root, here's why. If we're going to talk about religion or politics, then we're going to have to talk about both authority and submission. We're going to have to talk about authority and submission. And those words, those ideas, those realities stir up our emotions, don't they? I mean, even hearing the words, I'm sure your minds are filling with all sorts of experiences and things that have happened to you, either in the home or in the workplace, in your school, or your interactions with law enforcement and government. And we get a little uneasy, we get a little unsettled talking about authority and submission because we don't like it. Even though we live under authority and we all submit to something or someone, we simply have an aversion to it. We just don't like it. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We want to think what we want to think when we want to think it. We want to act how we want to act when we want to. And we don't want anyone or anything to impose on us. But God wants more for his people. He wants more for his church. He wants us to see and have a clear understanding from his word the purpose of authority, the purpose of submission, and how we live with the understanding of those words, how we live under authority and submit is a testimony before the world. So please open your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you'll find it toward the end of the New Testament, just a handful of letters back from Revelation. This morning we are returning to our occasional sermon series in this letter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a seat near you. You can find it on page 953. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation, the same translation as our chair Bible. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, through 3, verse 7. This is God's sufficient word, and this is the best part of the sermon this morning right here. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your sharp and profitable word. Lord, make us humble as you are humble. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word this morning. Spirit, turn the lights on in our minds. Illuminate our hearts. We ask this morning that we would be not informed by your word, but transformed by it. Open and illuminate our hearts, Lord. Guide our feet. Cause us to behold the glory of the Son this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage, these verses, are full of ancient truth for modern times. And in order to better understand our passage this morning, I want to step back before we step forward and look at the greater context for a moment. Thus far in this hope-giving letter, the Spirit through the hand of Peter has told the church who they are. Elect exiles, chosen by God. They're a part of his new people, the church, built upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus Peter's also told the church what they have, a living, new hope that is grounded in Christ and a spiritual inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, being kept in heaven. And he has told the church how to live before a watching world, a life of holiness, 
love, and purity. As those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light and made citizens of a better kingdom. And we saw last month in the closing of the previous section, there in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter writes these words. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter uses that word Gentiles there in a very specific way. He is not speaking of an ethnic or racial group. He is speaking of the world. Anyone outside of the church, outside of Christ. So what does it look like for the church? What does it look like for holy, loving, chosen pilgrim exiles to have an honorable life before a watching world? And what does this mean for our relationships here on earth? Well, we arrive at our verses this morning, and we have the answer here. And if you're taking notes, here's the the big idea of this whole section. Our relationship with Christ transforms our earthly relationships. Our relationship with Christ transforms our earthly relationships. And in our text this morning, Peter highlights three overlapping spheres of relationship that include authority and Christian submission. He gives us three pictures that display the relationship between the Christian and the world. He gives us the citizen and the government, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. The servant and the master, chapter 2, 18 through 25. And then the wife and the husband, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So let's get started. Point one, the citizen and the government. Imagine with me for just a moment. You're living as an elect exile somewhere in Asia Minor. You're part of a small church, and you hear that a letter has arrived from a disciple of Christ. You show up at church, and you begin to read the letter together. It says, from Peter to elect exiles. And you are filled with hope. You're reading this letter, and you're thinking, wow, I am so encouraged by what Peter is saying. This is so good. Oh, he has told me who I am. He has told me what I have. He has told me how to live. This is, this is awesome. And then you read these words. Be subject to every human institution, emperor or governors. And you're like, oh, oh, come again? Oh, hold on, what? what? What did you just say? What did he just say? Peter must be crazy. Does he know what's going on? Does he know that we live under Emperor Nero? Does he not know that we're living as exiles? And I wonder how we in this room would have responded if we were reading those words for the first time in the early church. And I wonder how you're responding even now as you hear these words written to the church of today. In these verses, Peter says, be subject to every human institution, specifically the government, the emperor and the governing authorities he appoints. And it's fascinating how Peter doesn't tell us how we are to submit. He doesn't give us the how. 
He just says you should be subject to the government. He calls the church simply to submit. And that word submit is a bad word in our society, isn't it? And it's also, I think, a bad word in the church. But Peter here is calling the church of yesterday and today, a church like EBC, to a biblical and countercultural thing. He is calling the church to civil obedience. And I recognize that this text is hard. It's hard to read then, it's, it's hard to read now. And there are many in our current context that would use this text kind of like an inebriated person uses a lamppost. They kind of lean on it and then maybe teach or speak of civil disobedience. But Peter's saying something more. The Spirit is calling the church to, to submit to the government. Why? Not for our sake, but for the Lord's sake. That's what he says in verse 13. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, that, for this is the will of God, that by doing good... You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, foolish people being the world. Beloved, good works, doing good doesn't save us, but it is an apologetic of our relationship with Jesus. And those actions, that doing good silences the ignorance and evil spoken against the church. And so do you see what Peter's doing here? He is saying that the act of submission is actually a good and gracious and godly thing. It is doing good. It is a fruit of salvation. Because of our relationship with Christ, brothers and sisters, our relationship with the government is transformed. And this truth dovetails into where Peter continues in his argument. He writes, verse 16, live as people, elect pilgrims, who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves, as some of your translations say, of God. Peter here is making it clear. Christians are free. We are citizens of a better kingdom. We are God's people first and foremost. That's our identity. Therefore, we are not to be political or social revolutionaries but we are to be ambassadorial revolutionaries for Christ and his kingdom, laying our rights down so that the gospel may be lifted up. In Christ and through his work, we can live with true freedom. Do you believe that? As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as slaves of God and not slaves of an earthly kingdom. We have true freedom in God, and yet we live as dual citizens. We live between two worlds. In the words of John Stott, we live in this world and the next. We live between those worlds. And how we live, speak, think, post on social media in the present matters to God. The way we speak about our government matters. The way we render to Caesar what is Caesar's matters. Our heart toward authority and understanding of godly submission matters to God. 
our posture toward the government, whether we are for or against it, whether we are for the current party or not, whether we are for or against policy around health concerns or not, it all matters to God, specifically how we act and think and speak in regard to these matters. So consider the posture of your heart toward the government this morning, toward governing authorities this morning, and consider your posture toward those who think differently than you on these matters. Peter goes on to say, don't use and abuse your freedom to serve yourself and cover up evil, but use your freedom to serve God. Here, Peter is calling us to an extraordinary understanding of freedom. He's calling us to a better freedom. And then he closes with these words, and they're quite sobering. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, there in verse 17. Four exhortations to the church. Beloved, we are to honor all image bearers. We are to love the church, the brotherhood, with a peculiar love. We are to fear God. Notice that fear is relegated to God alone, to no one else. Fear in our allegiance is ultimately unto him. And if any earthly governing authority asks us for our allegiance and to worship them, then we are to worship God. We are to stand with God and not with men. Make no mistake of that. But heed Peter's words here, what we do and how we act when it comes to our relationship with the government matters before a watching world. Well, at this point in our passage, he moves from the government to giving us a second picture of of relationship. He shifts our gaze toward authority and submission between a servant and a master. Point two, the servant and the master. Chapter two, 18 through 25. Let's read those verses together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Peter here continues the be subject pattern that he started in verse 13. He begins verse 18 with servants or slaves, as it says in some of your translations. Be subject to your masters with all respect. In other words, servants submit to your masters. And Peter goes on to say not only to the good and gentle, 
but to the unjust master, the unreasonable and the overbearing master. And I want to address the elephant in this text. You may be thinking, is Peter endorsing slavery here? Why isn't he condemning the master? Let me briefly address those questions. First, no, Peter is not endorsing slavery. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the New Testament, is slavery upheld as a good and social, a good social construct. Second, we must be careful not to read modern, southern, antebellum slavery, ethnic-based slavery, into Peter's words in his first century context. In that region, in Asia Minor and in Rome, according to historical commentary, there were three classes of people. The Roman citizen with perfect freedom. The freedman class that had restricted freedoms but was still given autonomy. And then third, the slave class the servant class. And that servant class included educated men and women who were often doctors, teachers, and managers. I read in one commentary that it was not unusual for a slave to be more educated than his or her master. But Peter's words are still difficult to read here. Christian servants are to endure and live honorably under good and bad authority. Why? Well, verses 19 through 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Oh, oh church, it is an evidence. It is an evidence of grace in the workplace and outside of it when we endure suffering and persecution, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, by the words and hands of the unjust. I remember working in the food and and service industry down in California, and I was written up by my manager because my till came up $10 short after a very busy morning. Even though my manager knew my character and we had all shared that register that morning, I was, well, falsely accused of stealing. It was an unjust judgment against me. If I had stolen, I would have deserved that, but I I didn't. And when I was written up, it was an unjust handling of the situation. There was also a time where I was called into my manager's office for sharing the gospel at work. I was told that I wasn't allowed to use company time to talk about my faith. So I wasn't... um, I wasn't set aside for hate speech. I was set aside for faith speech that day. In both cases, both in the, in the coffee house and in that other job, I had an opportunity to lash out. Or I could have left the results up to the Lord on the last day. Now I need to be clear, I don't tell these stories to prop myself up. But I do tell these stories because I wonder if you've experienced similar things where you've been treated unjustly. I tell these stories because I wonder how you handled that unjust treatment. Have you been treated unjustly or been persecuted in the workplace? And how did you handle that mistreatment? 
Beloved, Peter's words are comforting, actually. When we endure well, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When we submit well, we display the graciousness of Christ. When we endure well, we display the graciousness and transforming work of Jesus in our lives. Which is why here in this passage, Peter doesn't just tell servants in the church to do this. He gives us a model and a motivator in verses 18 through 25. He gives us Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the suffering servant. In these verses, Peter says that we are called to suffer because Christ suffered. The one who, bef- the one who before he was crucified did not revile or threaten, but for the joy set before him went to the cross. If our passage this morning was the solar system, this is the sun. This is the very center. Christ is the center. He is our example, and we are to imitate him. For being more like him is the Christian's goal, isn't it? He is our model of what it is to submit well That's what we see in verses 22 through 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered unjustly in his life and crucifixion, he did not threaten, but instead he entrusted himself to the Father and went to the cross for the joy set before him. Because of our relationship with God, we too, can entrust ourselves to him and walk in the steps of Christ. And it's ultimately his blood that speaks a better word than the words and actions of the world against us. For in his cross and resurrection, he bore and he took our sins upon himself. That's what Peter reassures us of here. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He humbled himself and went to a cross. And if you are a Christian, then you are covered in his cross work and in his resurrection. Peter is quoting here from Isaiah 53, that passage that we read earlier. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Christ, if you do not know this one who laid his life down for many, if you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with this suffering servant who died for you, I'm going to be standing in the back after the service. I would love to speak more with you about this. It's to speak more with you about the gospel of Jesus Christ killed for sinners and sufferers like you and I. But if you are a Christian, we can rest assured because Christ endured, we can also endure. I don't know if you notice the pattern here in this section. In verses 13 through 17, and then in verses 18 through 20, and then as we will see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter tells us what we are to do. But here at the center of the passage, he tells us what has been done in Jesus. Did you see that? Did you notice that? Isn't it incredible? 
I have a dear friend and brother in the faith. Before he passed, he would remind me of this pattern in Scripture often. He would say, isn't it great that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself? Barring the truth that he didn't have to ask for forgiveness as he was sinless. Church, Christ is our master who does not say, do as I say, but not as I do. Christ is our master who says, do as I say, and do as I do, and I will be with you. That's the Jesus that we serve. He is the one who is our shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the one that when we were lost, he sought and found us and pulled us back in to his pasture. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, but to serve by laying his life down for many. And our relationship with him transforms the way we do this in our lives. Well, thus far, Peter has given us two pictures of what relationship looks like in this world, specifically that relationship between the church and the world. He's held up the citizen and the government, and then he held up the slave and the master, the servant and the master. But third, he points us to, he wants us to to fix our gaze on the wife and the husband in chapter three, verses one through seven. Let me read those verses. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children if you do good. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I hope you've seen clearly this morning, thus far from God's word, that to be in the world and not of it, means to engage in the world in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, neighbor-compelling way. And that our allegiance to Christ, out of our allegiance to Christ, we engage society, the workplace, and now the home, the marital union specifically, with Christ-like gentleness and understanding. And I know that many of you are potentially thinking, wait, he's talking about marriage here. Six verses to women, but only one verse to men? What's up with that? Well, rest assured, the Spirit has much to say to both men and women in these verses. Before I go any further, I want to make three comments, three comments just on this section of Scripture. First, in a world that seeks to androgenize and flatline gender and gender roles, Peter's words here, about women and men and marriage are quite countercultural. And for some, they're even challenging. But know this 
Peter is upholding in these verses a high view of women, a high view of men, and a high view of marriage. Second, thus far this morning, we have spoken about authority and submission in the context of relationships. We have talked about mistreatment, abuse in some cases. And I want to be abundantly clear. To be subject does not mean to be subject to abuse. Abuse is never okay in the Lord's eyes. And so if you're a woman, if you're a woman here this morning and you are in an abusive relationship, that I would encourage you to reach out to the authorities, to find godly and biblical counsel from a woman here in the church. You can also reach out to the church office. We would love to get you resources. Third, what Peter means when he says submit is, is this. He's not saying that a wife is a doormat. He is not saying that a wife is a doormat. <clears throat> no, far from it. He is calling a wife to live in a complementary way with her husband, walking with him and following his lead insofar as he follows Christ and his lead. Well, let's look at our verses. Peter connects these verses to his previous points by starting with, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. In other words, wives, submit to your husbands. Not just any husband, but to your husband. And Peter goes on to say that even those husbands who do not obey the word, that is, God's word and gospel, may be won over to Christ without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see their respect and pure conduct. And from the language here, Peter has marriage in view, but more specifically, a certain type of marriage in view. He has in view a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. Peter is calling Christian wives to submit to their own husbands so that by a pure and loving example, their unbelieving spouse might see their faith, respect, and pure conduct in word and deed and be won over to Christ. More generally, this instruction is also for Christian wives who are married to Christian husbands. Faith, respect, and pure conduct are part and parcel of a good and godly marriage. So if you're here and you're married to an unbelieving husband, know that you're an extraordinary gift and that you're an evidence of God's grace to that, to that man before the watching world. If you're a Christian wife married to a Christian husband, then you too are a gift to your husband, a gift of grace as you pursue Christ-like submission, respect, and pure conduct before the world. Well, Peter moves on to say that when Christian wives and more broadly Christian women pursue and possess a Christ-like life and submission, they display an internal adorning and beauty and grace that is imperishable. That's the point of verses three through five. I love the way that the spirit through the hand of Peter speaks about women here. Verse three, he says, don't let your adorning, your beauty and attractiveness, 
be external through your hair, jewelry, or clothing, but may it be internal, a beauty of the soul that is precious. Don't you love that word? That is precious in God's sight. Peter is not saying that external beauty is bad, but he wants women to recognize that their true and lasting beauty is marked by what is inside. Eternal, imperishable, unfading beauty is a matter of the heart. A heart that has been changed, made clean, and made beautiful by the Spirit through the work of Jesus. And from a heart like this, a heart transformed by a relationship with Christ, flows a stream of gentleness and quietness of spirit. And when Peter says these things, he is not speaking about personality merely. He's not speaking about whether a woman is introverted or extroverted, soft-spoken or verbose, though his words may apply to those dispositions and temperaments at times. That's not his primary aim. Peter's primary aim is to get at the posture of the heart, just like he did with the previous two relationships with government and in the workplace. Imperishable beauty and a gentle quietness of the soul is precious to God and is a testimony of God's grace and goodness before a world of confusion, specifically over what true beauty is. So sisters in Christ, here this morning, this is how God defines true and lasting feminine beauty. This is God's word to you this morning. There's another voice, isn't there? It's the voice of this world that defines beauty through a lens of external, cosmetic, fleeting looks. So Christian women in a world of competing voices over what beauty is, over what true and lasting beauty is, what voice are you listening to? God's or the world's? Unmarried men, are you looking for a woman who possesses this kind of beauty? The kind of beauty that Peter is speaking of here in this text. An imperishable, Christ-like beauty. Married men, do you, do you view your wife's beauty like this? Are you assisting and leading your wife in a way that helps her grow in this sort of beauty? Take stock. Well, Peter doesn't just tell Christian wives and Christian women what imperishable beauty looks like. He shows them an example, a model. He offers Sarah, a godly woman, a holy woman who placed her hope in God. She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Not Lord as like Lord, but Lord as far as leader and head of the house. She trusted him, but even more importantly, she trusted God by trusting him, even in the midst of very uncertain, unpleasant circumstances. And you can read of those circumstances back in the book of Genesis. Well, Peter then transitions to our, for our final verse this morning, to speaking to husbands. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Or it could be read, live with your wives in a knowledgeable way. That word understanding, to know, knowledge, means to sexually know your wife. But men, don't get the wrong idea. 
Don't get the wrong idea. There's a broader application at what Peter is driving at here. Peter is calling husbands to live with and love their wives with a knowledge of who they are and how God has created them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He is saying that we are to sympathetically understand our wives and in a caring and empathetic way enter into their experience. A pastor friend of mine says, your wife's life is not a problem to be solved, but an experience to be shared. Men, do you believe that? If married men, for, for, for you married men here in this room, it is far easier for your wife to submit in a godly and gracious way if you were living with them in a godly and gracious and understanding way. So he who has ears, let him hear. Brother, just as Christ laid his life down for his bride, the church, if you are married, then you are to sacrificially live with and understand your wife in a unique and peculiar way for your good and for hers. Knowing that she is the weaker vessel. And what does, what does Peter mean there when he says weaker vessel? Well, in the context of our, of our passage, he is speaking of any weakness, any weakness that a wife may have that a husband might take advantage of, including physical, emotional, or authoritative weakness. Peter is calling husbands to not misuse authority or a particular weakness, but instead honor their wife as a co-heir in grace. What a beautiful picture, right? Men and women, husband and wives are co-heirs in grace. In Christ, men and women are joint heirs to that better kingdom. Well, then Peter closes this section with this conclusion. After speaking to wives and calling men to live with their wives in an understanding way, he says that we are to do this so that our prayers may not be hindered. It's a startling comment. It implies a handful of things. First, the your there is plural. Husbands are to be leading and praying with their wives. Prayer ought to be central to marriage. And second, he is saying that in marriage, when the husband is not living with his wife in an understanding and gracious way, then his and their prayers are literally blocked. They are hindered. What's Peter saying to, the, to marriages? What's he saying to the church? Well, he's saying this. There's a direct correlation between a thriving marriage and a thriving prayer life. More specifically, married men in this room, in order for our prayer lives to be effective and endure, we must honor our wives and live with them in an understanding way. That's the direct application from this last section of Peter's words here to the church. Oh, beloved, may our church be filled with thriving marriages that reflect the relationship between Christ and his church before a watching world. For when this is the case, we display Christ and how he has transformed us for our good and ultimately for his glory. But more generally speaking to the whole church, I want us to grasp Peter's words here. He is asking, he is pleading with, he is 
saying to the whole church that we need to all live with one another in an understanding way. That's the broad application of this. Loving one another, caring for one another, pointing one another to the gospel so that our church would be a living, breathing display of Christ's transforming power here in Edgewood, here in this region and beyond. Well, we should conclude. Our relationship with Christ transforms our earthly relationships. And it is Christ who reorients our understanding of authority and submission. It is Christ who reorients our relationships and shows us what it is to love our enemy, what it is to love God and and, and serve neighbor. He reorients our understanding of what it is to lay our lives and our preferences down for another. May we abide by God's word in our lives. So may our godly submission to the government, may our godly submission in the workplace, may our godly submission in the home be pleasing to the Lord as we wait with a spirit given enduring hope for Christ to return when he calls us home to that true and better kingdom that's waiting for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for for speaking to your church through your word. That you've not left us in the dark but have spoken to us. First, Lord, in your your word, scripture, but ultimately in the word made flesh, Jesus, the suffering servant, our true and better king. Lord, may we live lives that reflect the transforming power of life in you before this world. Do this work in us for your sake, for our good, and ultimately, Lord, for your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.